Hello, good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio where once a month we revel in all things TV, past and present. Um, it would be wrong of me to not mention what a uh, good-looking crowd you are tonight. We do, we do record this one. So for everyone at home, I think uh, if you're listening to the podcast, I think you need to put on something a little bit special. Um, I'm going to do all of my intros of the panel right up front so that you can uh, get straight down to business. Um, we have, and this is in no particular order, um, Ian Goldstone, who is in the... I don't know, is there a correct term for your... Sweater. Teal. <laughs> in his teal sweater. <laughs> um, Ian is an animation director, writer and co-founder of Pachinko Pictures. A native of New York, Ian has spent the last decade in London and has recently relocated to Melbourne. He spends his time making films and animated content for a wide range of clients and in 2007 won, a, won the BAFTA for his short animated film Guy 101. More recently, he has been working on a range of projects for clients including Vogue Japan, Microsoft Games Studio and Oxfam. Please welcome Ian. Uh, you... you Deserve to also tell me the official name for what you are wearing, Anthony. <laughs> this is my scarab jacket. Anthony is wearing a scarab jacket <laughs> in shiny black. Anthony is a Melbourne-based fashion designer and was the winner of Project Runway Australia Season 2. Known for his manskirts and avant-garde androgynous style, he has now launched his debut collection for spring-summer 2011 under his Melbourne-made fashion label, A Concept. Anthony. Paddy, what are you wearing? Sorry? What are you wearing? I'm wearing a... Actually, this is a vintage dress from the 1930s. Um, a tea dress and two necklaces. Beautiful. <laughs> Paddy Huntington. One from Shag and one from, um, sorry, Adelaide Street Market. My home. Paddy Huntington is a Sydney-based journalist who has been writing about fashion for the last 20 years. Paddy has been the Australasian correspondent of US industry newspaper Women's Wear Daily since 1996 and has been published in almost every Australian newspaper as well as business magazines. A former fashion reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald, she has specialised in new media, blogging for sydneymorningherald.com.au and news.com.au while covering the international fashion runway circuit from New York to London, Milan and Paris for both outlets. In July 2008, she launched her personal blog, Frock Writer. Howdy. Sarah Gale, what are you wearing? <laughs> I'm in traditional Melbourne black. <laughs> Sarah Gale, you may know Sarah as one of the judges and mentors on Project Runway Australia. Sarah is a retail buyer and began her fashion industry career in 1984. She has travelled extensively forecasting fashion trends and subsequently developing fashion ranges in Australia, China, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Sarah also runs her own fashion consultancy business, Fashionista Business Consultancy Group, and has won a number of awards for her work in the fashion industry. Sarah Gale. 
and our chair for the evening is David Sermon. David is an artist and designer and has recently migrated to Melbourne from the UK. Over the past 10 years, David has worked in many different creative environments. He has produced award-winning film and photographic works and exhibited internationally in galleries and festivals. David has developed and created characters, concepts and animations for theatre, commercials and video games and along with Ian in Teal, uh, Ian, he, they run the animation studio called Pachinko Pictures, also in classic Melbourne Park. Thank you. Over to you. Thanks, Hannah. That's an epic introduction for all of us there. Um, what an awesome crowd. There's a whole... Uh, room full of people deeply passionate about Project Runway, which is exactly what we were hoping for when we were um, talking about this panel. Um, the format tonight is going to be um, quite casual. We're going to all talk about our various perspectives, um, not just on Project Runway, but on the broader contemporary fashion space, thinking about what it means to work in contemporary fashion, what it means to retail in contemporary fashion, to write about contemporary fashion. Um, and really, we're, we're reflecting on um, the past, the present, and, and really, I guess, uh, also talking about where the future um, might go. Um, how many people have seen uh, a, season, a whole season of Project Runway in this room? So a silent majority of people have, have seen it. Um, Project Runway is, um, as you know, uh, a television program which endures. It's in its like ninth season now in America. Um, for an arts program to be in its ninth season, that's really quite something. Um, it's kind of like the, the TV show that just keeps on going, and it changes um, networks, and it changes kind of direction, and the people controlling the show change. But it endures, and I think the reason that it endures is that there is a kind of silent majority of people who are actually really interested in this kind of arts programming, who are really interested in fashion and interested in a kind of um, seeing reality TV go somewhere interesting, but also seeing people uh, take seriously what it means to work in a large industry like the fashion industry. Um, just to introduce um, why I'm here um, hosting this like glorious panel, um, I just wanted to talk a bit about my background. Growing up in the UK in the 1980s, you're talking about somewhere where on TV you do not see fashion, you do not see uh, uh, any kind of um, serious reflection on uh, clothing, fashion, art, uh, whatsoever. What you're dealing with in the UK is um, fashion on the street, absolutely. People doing really interesting things, and I think that's always been the characteristic of places like London. People on the street engaging in uh, a really creative use of their uh, personal fashion, and you see that here in Melbourne too. But on the TV, absolutely not. There used to be TV shows like The Clothes Show. How many people have heard of The Clothes Show? Nobody. <laughs> like seriously, like a tragic, tragic TV show. But um, interesting things would happen with the clothes show. If we can have the, uh, um, the screen up here for the computer. Um, I used to watch the clothes show, you know, in my pyjamas, eating cereal as a little kid. And it would be like super banal. 
And then every so often, this guy would appear on the clothes show, who's a native of Australia. This awesome guy. And, I j and this, is a, this clip is like, this is, this is like archaeology for me. This is burnt into my mind. Okay, this actual clip. Okay? Do you take in fashion generally? I love the fashion world, Karen. I've always got my nose in a glossy magazine or tickets for the front row of fashion shows and so on. I love seeing all my friends showing their latest collections. So I'm a real fashion fan, but I'm not completely sure what effect it has on me. Now, these are sort of clothes that you can see wearing at clubs and parties. What would you wear for a special occasion? Well, actually, this garment is worn at a rather special occasion, and that is Michael Clark's new show, which is at Sadler's Wells currently. So if, you, if anyone would like to see me for that matter on the stage there in one of this and many more outfits, please do, don't hesitate to come along. <laughs> what a gorgeously satisfying day this has been. And so many bargains. I'm wearing an, I guess you'd call it an apres ski outfit for this rather chilly evening. I think it's quite appropriate in this setting as well. So that's... <laughs> okay. Just a short clip, quite hard to find. So... Lee Bowery in his apres ski outfit, um, just to a, you know, a boy of kind of eight or nine years old, just changed my world. Um, seeing Lee Bowery, um, you know, a big guy, you know, he was like seven foot tall, you know, kind of intimidating big guy, just totally in control uh, of the situation, in control of his image, and projecting a kind of powerful surrealism. Um, I was totally magnetised by him, and I only recently found out after relocating here that Lee Bowery is from Victoria and uh, grew up in Sunshine. So this is like, I'm coming home, I'm back, you know, I'm going to, you know, merge with Lee Bowery's soul or something. So, so Lee Bowery is the kind of inspiration for this panel, maybe a bit more than Project Runway, but Project Runway is awesome too. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to um, talk to each of our guests and um, they're going to talk about their own perspectives. And then what we're going to do is we're going to um, try and create as much time as possible for questions. Okay, because I'm sure with a crowd as engaged as this that there are going to be some questions for our panel. Okay, so um, I wanted to start with Sarah. Um, uh, you all know Sarah as one of the judges from Project Runway and uh, in her own right as, her, as an entrepreneur and a kind of key figure in the Australian fashion scene. Um, so Sarah, I've got a few questions here and I wanted, I wanted to really get your perspective just to sort of set the scene for the panel. Um, fashion is, I think fa from what I can gather in the past 10 months, fashion is a big deal in Melbourne. You, you know, it's kind of an understatement to say that fashion is, is a big deal in Melbourne. Um, one, of the, one of the contemporary issues that I think we've spoken about that sort of frames um, the fashion industry is that we've got a new, a new kind of customer in fashion um, who is quite different from the, the sort of fashion customer of even a few years ago. Um, what do you think characterises that person? 
Look, I think we've, we've definitely come into a new phase in the sense that if you think about the 80s, it was very cookie cutter. The 90s start was, was much the same as well. With the rise in vintage and then definitely with the rise in blogging and online media, we see a lot more individualism that's come into play. And that's made it, it's, it's created a whole new realm out there for both retailers and consumers in one, how you sell, and then two, how you put your outfit together and what sort of resources you use for that. So we have seen a real swift, a really swift change, and it's happened quickly. Often with fashion, you see it going with the social trends, and this has almost been a powerhouse. It's moved very, very quickly, and some retailers are really struggling to keep up with that. Mm. So the, the, the kind of the creativity of the customer is, is kind of a challenge to the retailer. Look, it is. Where the retailer used to be able to really dictate what the consumer was going to wear, it's, it's come back to the other side now. The consumer's very fussy. They're shopping high-low from really high designer pieces down to low-end, whether it be vintage markets, whether it be op shops, whether it be discount department stores. They're shopping all over the place and they're finding different ways to put their looks together. So they're, they're also creating their own unique style. And, and sometimes it, it's difficult for some people. Um, I think it, it poses a lot of questions for a lot of people just in their own minds as well, where there used to be a formula. For those people who don't have a lot of fashion instinct, there used to be a formula and it was almost easier for them to go out shopping and to go, this is the way I'm going to look. And they felt like they belonged. With this new trend of putting together your own outfits, I think it's leaving a lot of people really stuck for what to wear. And we don't have as many guidelines in with store staff and things like that to really educate people. There's a whole new education process that is taking place at the moment and needs to keep up to speed. Mm. Do you think um, one of the problems, in a way, is that um, much like the art community, there's the fashion community, and the fashion community operates and um, talks to itself, and designers talk to retailers, and so on and so forth. And sometimes there's a loss of the sense of the of the substantial difference between the fashion community and the actual customer. Absolutely. And I think those of us in the fashion industry understand it's a very insular industry. And we do all chat about what we believe and you know how we think this trend is going to work and that trend's going to work. And I always say to people, anyone in this room, we have to remember we're not a normal consumer. The consumer, to really have a successful business, you have to know your consumer. And that's becoming increasingly more difficult in a sense because it is branching out and we've got a number of different factions within the one consumer. But we really have to remember that, that we're not the normal consumer. If we understand fashion, that is not the majority of the population. Mm. So it is interesting, you know, and it's really... Look, I love seeing all the, the passion and ambition from some of the younger. Like, especially, you look at what's happening in males. I mean, my gosh, that the men's fashion is just changing at a rate of knots. And it's like when it first started and the whole Metro influence came in, in in the early, probably around, say, this decade, or the last, sorry, 2000s, the noughties, as people call it, which I find really odd. But um, <laughs> anyway, the 2000s and something. Um, and it really started to push through. And people, and straight guys, 
started to feel more comfortable in being able to wear what their gay counterparts were wearing as well. And now, and, and now men are wearing women's clothes. Well, and now I know, <laughs> it's fabulous. Men. And then, hey, Anthony. And then it moved <laughs> through. This is the <laughs> I love the fact that we've seen this real transition. And, and androgyny is becoming that next phase to that. But you look at some of the, you know, 18, 19-year-old males out there, and they're looking stylish. And the females are going to have to keep up now with that new breed of men, which is fantastic. You know, and you've got skincare, you've got hair products, which that all started first. And then you look at the rise. Have you seen how many new men's labels, and Melbourne made us as well, have come out? I, t I think it's fantastic. I think it's really exciting what's happening. Do you think in the, in the sort of metro, I mean, we were in London at the, at the time. Do you think, it, from, from my point of view, I often saw like the pressure from women as soon as they picked up on like the, the sort of metrosexual shift, there was like a pressure in kind of heterosexual couples between from girlfriends to boys. Like you need to like step up because you look like a tramp, and <laughs> uh, my gay friends look awesome, basically. You know what? I think you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, look, I feel. No, I'm not going to say I feel sorry, but I think men have got an interesting position in society at the moment. We expect them to be everything. They've got to be emotional. They've still got to be very masculine. They've got to look beautiful. They've still got to do all the work, you know, the handiwork and stuff like that. So it's we, we are expecting a lot, I think, and I do think that women did put a lot of pressure on. And why not? We love our men to look gorgeous. They like us to look gorgeous. We like them to look gorgeous. And I think it has... It, it's been a massive movement, but it hasn't just been... It started off as female to male, but it's now male to male. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing these figureheads in, like in um, friendship communities that they know that we can follow that one. A bit like when you've seen Gossip Girl, you know, Chuck, ba Chuck Bass, and, you know, it has that kind of very... Everyone looks to him for that next... Um, you know, that kind of tailored look. And I think that we're finding that we've got these pivotal heads in different communities that people look up to. I think mm. it's really cool. Do you think there's a straight male audience for Project Runway? Yes. I think it's becoming more and more. <laughs> when, I'm in, when I'm, like, out and about, I get so many husbands come up to me. Well, actually, it starts out as the wife. They come up to me and say... Can you say hi to my husband? He's really embarrassed, but he actually loved you on the show. Can you go and say hi to him? And I go up and they're like, it's, but it's always the men who actually probably get more excited than the women when they say hi. So it's like... A weird fetish or something. Maybe. It's like what you were saying about the Metro era, Sarah. It's like the, the sort of women acting as kind of gatekeepers to a world of actually, you know, looking all right. And then, in, you know kind of women acting as gatekeepers for straight men to that media, like giving them permission to it, engage think, with it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a certain permission that they needed. You know, because if you think back to some of the daggier areas for men, there was, you know, the 70s and 80s weren't always fabulous. Um, and I think that there was almost, if you dressed too well, people were suspicious. So there was uh, certainly in Australia, there's been this thing of, you know, the ochre male then he can be seen with this stereotype and no one really questions 
who he is or what his lifestyle is or what he gets up to or, you know, it's kind of like that blending into the crowd. And I think we've allowed the opening of the doors for men to stand out and say, hey, I look great and I love it. Mm. And I think that things like Project Runway, it doesn't surprise me the comments from Anthony because mm. their wives or girlfriends will watch it and they'll watch it as well. And it does give them permission to be interested in something that has traditionally been a female forum. Well, mm. for the last few centuries. If you go back centuries and centuries, my gosh, the male clothing was really ornate. I mean, they took so much pride in what they mm. looked like, you know, and makeup and, you know, the hair. It was, it was phenomenal, but we've <coughs> lost that. And I think mm. we're just coming back to it mm. in that balance of male and female. I think in a way, like with Project Runway, because the, it's in a framework of competition, it gives you something to hold on to if you're not comfortable with the full kind of discourse of fashion and so on. You're able to be like, Anthony's got to win. <laughs> you know? I think you're right, and that's a very male-dominated, like that's a real left brain is competition. Yeah. So I think that pulls that side of it in. Yeah. I think what I love about Project Runway is that, yes, it is fashion, but it's still got that game element to yeah, it as well. absolutely. And everyone can be their own judge. Everyone yeah. sits mm. at home and decides who should win, who shouldn't, who's in, who's out, and probably, yeah. you know, decides that... The judges, they don't agree with that or they do agree with that. It allows everyone, they first of all watch the creativity. And not mm. if you think about when you go into a store, how many times do the, does the majority of the population pick something off a rack and have no idea how that's created? So it doesn't bring a story to anything mm. that they're wearing. What Watching someone actually create something creates a story. And our life is about storytelling. So when we put something on, we have far more of an affiliation if we know the process or a little bit of the process that it's gone through. It's like when you cook a meal. You know that process. You have a different appreciation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's slightly alarming um, when we were watching it in the UK and sort of, uh, straight friends of ours were like... Sudden, you know, these men are suddenly talking about the colour story of a, of a show or like silhouette mm. and things like that. And you're like, where did you learn that language? Yeah. It's kind of alarming. It's like, an, it's like a kind of shaved ape talking at you in this, you know. <laughs> oh, it's a bit rude. <laughs> um, so you were talking about l this notion of like left brain, right brain. We can sort of think of that as like the art, the mm. artistic creative side and the logical sort of rational side um in fashion i think sort of contemporary fashion is this balance of business and art and i think um the thing i find most interesting about watching um melbourne fashion from a from a distance is that there's a sort of um there is a sort of focus on maintaining those two spaces not allowing it to cascade into into one or the other um i'm interested you guys you know anthony and sarah you guys have a have a history, yeah. It's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, when I was when we were researching the panel, I was talking to Sarah, and um, Sarah was talking about um, being a young a young designer. You really have to um, develop your designer's voice, but at the same time, kind of have an appreciation for your customer yeah. and an appreciation for the business. And you cited Anthony as a really kind of powerful example of someone who is able to kind of quite naturally negotiate those kind of spaces. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that relationship between the business and art of fashion sure. and perhaps where 
um, young designers are sometimes going in the wrong direction, you know, sometimes sure. taking for granted their customer? Look, I think, um, I mean, passion comes from our right side, and it's, it's that very, you know, if someone wants to be a designer, all that passion is flowing through there. So for them, because I, I see a lot of young designers, and I have a lot calling me, and um, they want to get out their product. So they, they want to get their designs out, and they've got these fabulous visions. And, you know, and they're all, a lot of the time, they're very worthy of that. However, if you don't have that business side, if you don't have the commercial side, you might as well be developing gowns in your garage because it's not actually going to get out there. It's just not one of those things. So if, in anything, we have to have, and when you think of any fashion trend, we always have the right and, and um, left side brain. That's intertwined. If you look at society now, we, you know, the, the right and left, we're coming in the age of Aquarius, we're in that balance of age, and this business is no different. And with Anthony, one of the fabulous things that, I mean, your last collection on that, that won you the title was, it was a really dramatic show, and it, and you know, I mean, the watering cans, you had the flora, we got the whole thing around the garden, and it was a real show. But at the same time, as each piece walked down that runway, I could see it in isolation hanging on a rack. For me, it totally won it over because you have to be able to have your signature style. You've got to be able to have that, that vavoom within your range, but you've still got to be able to sell your pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that you do a lot of separates as well. Mm -hmm. They'll coordinate, but a lot of separates. And, to be, and this day and age, everyone wants to mix and match everything. Mm. And, you know, I think Anthony is a perfect example of taking a young designer and he's got the business mind, the commercial mind, but he's still retained his signature, but he's mm. worked out how to meld them both. Mm. And, you know, I think maybe having worked also in the business... Yeah, I think and working in the industry and working with another company which has such... It is a commercial company as much as we are quite different to everyone else out there, we do have to think about the bottom dollar and how we're actually going to stay afloat but also make a good profit in the, um, in the business at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for example, the, your scarab jacket, I mean, there's not, you would probably <laughs> say that there's not much commercial demand for a scarab jacket, but nevertheless, it's a beautiful garment um, and there probably would be a market mm. for it if you look for it. I just wanted to um, jump in there that... Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, obviously that designers, young designers need that sort of commercial edge. I mean, anyone in any kind of business, whether it's they're a freelance journalist, I mean, you need to understand how to run a business because mm. it's not just about having the work or getting the getting the commissions, getting the sales. You've got to remember with invoice and that sort of stuff. But by the same token, if you look at the number of designers who are out there um, who've either taken, you know, equity partners have, have, you know, purchased a stake in the company because they can't keep it going or they've sold their companies. I mean, look at Sass and Bide. Uh, I mean, they almost went under, and then they got a sort of an equity injection from David Briskin and Daniel Beeson, uh, and then, you know, two years later, sold to Maya for mm. a substantial amount of money. So, mm. I mean, yes, they should have it, but I just wonder whether necessarily, I mean, you can be a great, great designer and also have that business side nailed down. I'm, I'm not sure that many can do, can do both. I often say to people, if you don't have that, because you have to be very real about your skill set, and if that's not part of your skill set, then you need to find someone to partner with to fill that skill set, because you can't run a fashion business without having an arm that knows the commercial side. So if you don't have it yourself, find someone who does. Yeah. I think it, uh, for, for like young people who are creative, often your creative ego won't allow you to make such a shrewd decision until you're a bit older and you realise like, 
I can't actually do everything myself. Mm. You know, I think certainly, you know, from personal experience and like, you know, from a lot of people I know, you know, you get, you get into this idea that like, you know, you have to be like a renaissance figure capable of doing every aspect of, of your, of your craft and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most powerful problems. statements I ever learned was, I don't know. So if someone says to me, you know, and it's really not in my field of experience, even when I consult, I like doing a certain thing within my consulting and yes, they'll ask me questions on other levels that I'll know, but I'll say to them, it's not my expertise, find someone else to do that, because actually I don't like doing that, you know, it doesn't interest me, some of it. I think it's a point that we'll pick up with, with Patty as well in the, in the, in, uh, the next uh, few discussions, but um, there's this, I, I, I get this sensation, particularly um, with young designers that in the past few years with the kind of push of social media and the internet and the way that that's kind of shaped the fashion conversation that there is a there is a pressure for young designers to almost like rush to um, a point of distinctiveness and and kind of skip some of the basic steps of building a kind of solid um, grounding in mm. the business and so on I mean like you know if you search online and you're looking at fashion blogs and you're looking at Tumblr and Flickr and all that kind of stuff, it can be intimidating, you know, these stories of very young designers with very sophisticated uh, visions of what they want to do, um, who seemingly are kind of doing it effortless, effortlessly. I think it puts a huge pressure on young designers to kind of have a distinctive, powerful uh, output from day one. So do you think that, do you see those same pressures from your perspective? Yeah, I do. I, I do get quite, and I had a client yesterday who's probably late 20s, looking at, decided she's left her job, decided she's going into, and she wants to be a designer and she wants to design her range. And she'd skipped so many steps and she was already up to sampling things, but she hadn't done the fundamentals and even the creative fundamentals, which mm. is like, first of all, work out, your customer and, and really know the people out there first. And a lot of people design, oh, I, I'm going to do what I like. Mm. Well, we're all unique. And that doesn't mm. mean that we're going to translate to the rest of the commercial world. Mm. So you ought to keep, keep your own signature, but then you know, find out, really isolate what portion of, of the customer segments you're gonna go for. And then you start building like your mood boards, your theme boards, and then you see how it works in. And you think of your customer and you go, what's in their lifestyle? How am I going to be able to fulfill that? And none of that had been done. She'd rushed straight to samples. So I pulled her right, it was like getting a horse and pulling the reins back and saying, mm. and she wanted manufacturers and this and that. I said, no, 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 I'm not giving you any of that. Not till you've done your groundwork. Mm. And I think if you do, the designers, if they build their platform first and they're really clear in their head, you know, about who's out, who they're trying to target and how they're going to do that and who, what, what contains that, what's in that lifestyle, then they've got a hope of being able to really know that customer like it's their best friend. Mm. And I think it's, it's fundamental business practices first. Mm. And it's not necessarily number crunching. You know, there's, there's a lot of platforms that you really need to set. So whatever you're building, you're building on a really mm. clear and very, very strong foundation first. Coming back to Project Runway, I think it's something that you often see <coughs> in, this, in the sort of story of a season of Project Runway. Um, 
I'm not thinking about the Australian one in particular, but any of them, the Korean one, the Iranian <laughs> project. <laughs> um, you get this sense of like within the group of contestants, there are those that position themselves as um, orientated toward the high street and see themselves as commercial designers, but they lack a kind of a vision that's going to sustain them. And then you have designers who see themselves as operating within the sort of avant-garde mm -hmm. who don't... Um, have a way of reconciling that with a kind of commercial vision. And it seems like the, the, the recurring narrative of seasons of Project Runway is this kind of um, uh, process through which you do end up very often with, the, with designers who can balance those things. And, you know, it tends to be that the, the sort of more mundane designers go very early in the process, then you lose the wacky ones, and you end up with the really interesting designers in the final space. And very often they'll keep a very commercial designer to, ha to produce that contrast mm. in the final stages of the competition. So it's an interesting, it's interesting how that plays out within the story of the yeah, I think, look, as far as just uh, touch on what you said, that they'll keep, I have to say that we didn't keep anyone mm. that we didn't feel was worthy of being yeah, there. Totally, and yeah. we weren't, on no account were we asked to keep you know, someone within that show by producers or anything like that. So it was very much, we looked at it and said, who do we believe yeah. on a weekly thing, on a mm. weekly basis, who would come in? So I think, but I think you're right, the people who end up do have to have that balance of both. Mm. Um, and without that, you, you mm. actually don't have a, the flatliners, as I call them, the ones that go out, <laughs> and they're just on that very commercial, but there's nothing there. Even this girl I said yesterday, remember your commercial market, but make sure you've got your signature coming through. Even if the, the, your buyer doesn't understand that for two or three seasons, make sure there's something that's always weaving through. So within a couple of seasons, people are going, I get the signature look. Mm. It's a really, there's, there's a fine line, but you've got to have that, you still have to have that signature look, or you might as well just sell on high street somewhere, but you can't command the prices of Australian made. You mm. know, it's, it's a balance. It's a mm. balance for them all. I love the, uh, in the, if you watch a lot of the American seasons, the, there's always the guy from the American South who makes ball gowns, <laughs> like in evening gowns, and that's like that's his thing. And he's just yeah. like he's like a velociraptor. Like that's what he's going to do for the rest <laughs> of his life. You know, he's going to be buried in like a well, million. There's a big ball market gowns. in the South. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there probably is too. Exactly. Okay, thanks, thanks, Sarah. That was fantastic. Um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to reserve questions for the end so that we can get you know a kind of. A full QA session. What I wanted to do uh, now is move on to Anthony, and uh, and we've got some uh, slides here. He says, waiting for my computer to to switch on. Um, Next. <laughs> no, we've got it. There we go. Okay, so. Um, Anthony's got a, a selection of slides, and I think you're just going to talk to the slides? Yeah, well, it's called Project Runway tonight, so I thought we'd, I'd talk about my collection. In turn, you've all seen it now, so anyway. Um, basically, the reason why I did this is because I think it reflects who I am, and I think as a designer, the biggest thing is you need to know who you are before you can create something or you can sell it to someone. As a designer, I feel you're going to represent your brand the best that anyone can ever mm. sell it onto. So 
when I was doing my collection, um, I think it was really important for me to show what I love, but also show what Australian fashion can be. Because I didn't want to just create something that is on a TV show, which is good for Australia. Um, I wanted to show, you know, it goes around YouTube. I was in Hong Kong and this little Asian man came running up to me and he that was amazing. And I was so not ready for that. <laughs> but I mean, it was amazing because, I mean, fashion isn't just a language for, it's universal. And I thought that was really important for me. Um, so obviously you're seeing I like black. And I wore a bit of colour today because I don't want to be predictable. Um, yeah, so I guess this is who I am in terms of clothing and like that, I would definitely wear that. Um, <laughs> if I met Gaga, that would be what I'd wear probably. Um, but I think it's, you know, for a young designer, I think it's really important. I'm not that young anymore. I'm 27. But still young. Still young. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think it's important to know who your customer is. Like Sarah was saying, I have a niche market and I think it, for me, I feel it's changed in terms of the marketplace before, when I was younger, I thought, oh, you can just make some clothes, put it in a shop and people will buy it. I think it's so, the market's oversaturated with young designers. There's more fashion schools mm. opening, you know, anyone can get a degree or diploma and, you know, there's gonna be some better than others. But for me, when I studied, I just grew up in Canberra. Um, our course was based on small business, not trying to take over the world. Um, but knowing who you want to cater for, so yeah. Cool. I'm w while we're looking through these things, I've got some questions here that I've you know I've always wanted to ask you really. Um, I'm I'm really interested when we look at this stuff. How you sort of arrive at, at right? You, how you've arrived long term at your signature aesthetic? When you look when you think back to college stuff mm. and post college, do you see the seeds of this? sort of growing then or did you go through a phase where you kind of you know sort of um, had an aesthetic and then kind of shed it to reveal the kind of your, your more true voice well I've got some friends from Canberra up there so they know what I used to wear <laughs> so it's kind of different to this now but I think it was I grew up in a very conservative place um, I was brought up very religious I went to church every um, Sunday and so I wasn't used to having a place which I could really express who I was. Mm. Um, I used to wear a lot of colour and I think as I've grown up, I put on colour the other day and everyone at head office was in hysterics. They're like, you look <laughs> like a five-year-old. And I think that is something that has really made me dress in a lot of black. Um, I look very young. So when I wear colour, I do look very, you know, I want people to take me seriously and I think mm. that's, the thing for me with black is there's so many different tones of black and that's why I like working with it. So it's like, it, yeah, so it's about producing, a, a um, modifying your, your own image to kind of like enhance and sort of age you in a way and add a, add a dimension to who well, you are. Yeah, I mean, my work is an extension of who I am. Yeah. So I think um, it is a natural progression and I think it will definitely keep changing and evolving. Yeah. But I think the basics of it will stay like I love texture I love interesting silhouettes mm. I like playing with interesting um, mediums so mm. I've used a lot of perspex before mm. and metal and I don't like just using traditional materials mm. 
Do you find what you were just saying there about I wear colour and it makes me look young, I wear black and it, and it gives me what I need, do you mm. find that in your customer there's a similar experience being reflected? Well, I guess for my customer, I do a lot of unisex clothing mm. and for a guy to put on a singlet which could be seen as a dress in black, that's not too intimidating for them mm. to be able to put that on. But if they'll to put it in put it on in hot pink, that's mm. gonna take them to a whole nother place, which <laughs> I probably wouldn't want them to go. But I you know, I think it's important, you know, for people to they wanna be different but they don't want to be seen as as if they're dressing up, mm. you know. So these images here, we've so these this is your collection from mm -hmm. Project Runway, and as yeah. we progress, this is, um, is this uh, from Project Runway, or is this This is my collection that I just have out. Awesome, so okay. And what's going in now. And what do, you, what do you see as the evolution in your own sort of, from your own perspective, from what you pr were producing on the show to now? Well, I think, I mean, this is reality, so mm. it had to be a mo lot more refined. I had mm. 10 weeks to make a collection, yeah. and there was that stress, and there was a budget. Obviously, I have, tighter budgets now yeah but it's also it's understanding what you want to give off as an artist yeah. but also what you think you can sell right okay so it's it has a kind of realism shaping it you know the sort of realities of you know, well yeah it has to yeah. be yeah yeah interesting okay so what are these images here as we progress through this was my outfit from melbourne cup which i actually won the designer category for so it was exciting and I think this was actually m more exciting for me winning because I was up against other designers who have been in the industry for 20 years. So, you know, winning a TV show was great for me, but I'll, there was also that thing that, oh, you won because you're that crazy, weird, Gaijin, like, you know, <laughs> last year the boring girl won, so this year the crazy Gaijin has to win. <laughs> so for me to actually win a prize against people who have been in the industry who you know, they're amazing. Mm. They're amazing technicians, they've got great creativity. So, but yeah, this is the direction I'd like to head in with my mm. stuff. And there's colour. So this is an, mm. some perspective on that That's as great. well. And as you see, you, you know, the things you're talking about, the silhouette and the use of darks mm. and so on. And for that, I mean, again, like I was saying, I like to use different materials. So the headpiece was made out of a vintage clock, which we bought on eBay. Mm. So, I mean, I don't expect everyone to wear that every day, but that's why I love the races. Everyone dresses up. It's, it's, it's theatrics, it's drama, it's more than you would usually wear. And then I made a clutch with the remains of the clock. So for me, I like things to have a story. My label is yeah. A Concepts, so it's very conceptual. Hmm. <laughs> it's like that combination of hard and soft as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think everyone likes to feel you know, like they've got a bit of structure and very mm. confident, but at the same time, I think everyone's got the vulnerabilities and mm. that sort of, yeah. Talk to us about this. That's my boyfriend, Chad. No, it's not really. <laughs> 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 I wish. No, he's an amazing friend of mine. Um, but he's beautiful. Um, could look at that all day. Um, I guess, I don't know, a lot of when I did my collection at Rosemount, there was all this hoopla about me doing dresses for guys and that's about it, oh, and skirts. But for me, it was sort of, I didn't even think of that. I 
Uh, I even got interviewed the other day about androgyny and for me, I think it's such an over-talked about mm. topic because, I mean, I think of clothing as unisex. So, it's for me, it's clothing, but it's mm. also an extension of who you are. And everyone always tries to bring, bring sexuality into mm. clothing and I don't think they're really... Do you think the way th that... Um you know, fashion gets taught in fashion schools might push people to a really strong sense of gender that they then kind of, you know... Well, like Sarah was saying, you know, you get taught in business that you have to have your market niche. Yeah. So usually they say, are you going to do menswear? Are you going to do women's wear? And I'm like, for my graduating collection, I, was, I did unisex clothing and mm. they came down the runway and she was wearing it as a pair of pants and then she turned it into a top and then he put it on and it came a jacket. That's mm. what I see as what I do. It's not necessarily garments or clothing which everyone wants to wear. It's a, it's a form of art. And mm. I think, you know, I like mm. that it's not just clothing. Mm. Do you guys have any perspectives from a kind of, from the business and journalistic end on, on the kind of androgyny in fashion story? Because we've just had the Vogue issue with the, you know, cover story on androgyny. Do you see any characteristics? characters of of the of the kind of androgyny story how it's been developing well, over I mean and you know talking about Melburnians I mean we've had Lee Bowery we know we've got, mm. I mean Andre Page who tonight is walking the black carpet of Maya with, with his mother I mean um, this incredibly androgynous uh, model from Melbourne who's really probably the biggest one of if not the biggest story in the modeling um, industry in the world I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I think, I think I mean, there are um, more and more designers who are doing these unisex collections. I don't know how complicated it becomes with the sizing. Because um, <laughs> men and women are different sizes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a sort of... It's just a, it's a evolution of the industry. And, mm -hmm. and as Sarah pointed out before, once upon a time, men were far more... In fact, far more colourful in, in what they wore. It was actually the French Revolution that brought, brought an end to that because anyone who was um, seen to be wearing any sort of foppish trappings of the aristocracy t tended mm. to lose their head and that's when this era of sobriety was sort of ushered in mm. and you know men's men's clothing hasn't really changed that much apart from you know spurts of things like the dandies and, mm. and carnaby street in london so um mm. yeah, i think look, it's a really interesting moment i mean and, and we have men modeling <coughs> women's wear as mm. in, in andre leah t who's this uh transgender model who's been modeling for Givenchy and stuff so interesting mm. times yeah, I think it is. I think that we're seeing um, there is a shift. Mm. And I think because we've seen um, males become a lot more interested, it may, it's a natural progression that we're mm. going to find clothes that have that androgynous feeling. And I think that um, it, it, it comes back again into that balance of male and female. Mm. And I think we're all trying to, we're all grappling with finding that ourselves. I think, mm. as you said before, it's like we all want to feel that strength, but we also want to feel that vulnerability and mm. women predominantly women have been seeing more of that you know that vulnerability and safer to feel that vulnerability and males have tried to put over that strength and we're now each gender's coming in to the acceptance of both so it makes sense that we're going to see that as Anthony said what we wear is an expression of who we are mm. and I think that as people become more and more comfortable with with expressing that and putting that together and taking those risks in that it can only build them up on the inside as well because you, you know, when you feel strong enough to be able to do that and have that self-acceptance, then that, that sits in your energy field and that's what goes out. Mm. I, th I think fashion's also becoming 
more inclusive. I mean, people like yeah. to sort of go on about fashion being very exclusive, which of course it is, and it, and it, and it needs to be, otherwise it becomes banal. Mm. And that's, um, I mean, talking about broadcasters and publishers, I mean, that's one of the mistakes that I think traditional broadcasters, certainly in the commercial area, make. They, to, um, to, 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 to do anything with, to do with fashion, they always try to dumb it down because they think it's over the heads of the audience. Mm. Um, and once you dumb it down, uh, it takes away the mystique, it takes away the mm. glamour. And, and, you know, people like to have this sort of fantasy. But um, mm. it's, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of sort of interesting things happening. I was interested to ask Anthony, sorry, just to sort of segue away from that, have you done any costumes or considered doing costumes for film or theatre? I mean, my biggest dream is to do, like, a music video clip. For right, well, indeed. But that's what I'd love to get into. I haven't done costumes. I've, when I was younger, I did Irish dancing costumes because right. I grew up with that. But no. Because I, I can't you see his... I mean, there's this a real costume element, and I think mm. it'd be amazing with some, I mean, fantastic film people. Yeah. Um, I mean, theatre, opera. Mm. Um, that, yeah, that's definitely something yeah. I'm looking to. Where, where it needs to be, you know, it mm. needs to be theatrical. Mm. I mean, um, ordinary clothing doesn't necessarily need, need to have the sort of the scarab um, epaulettes, but... Yeah. <laughs> mm. But we like them yeah. just the same. They're warm. <laughs> I'm getting a bit hot. <laughs> Insulation. <laughs> so, um, I've got, I mean, do we have any student designers in here at all? If we don't, I can just ditch this question. No, well, no, I'll, I'll ask it anyway. This is like a standard question, so don't sigh too much. Um, is there any advice you would give to a young designer just enrolling in fashion school this semester? Um, I just think know what you really want to produce. There's okay. always going to be people who say, do this, do this, do that. And there's going to be some amazing feedback and there's going to be some people who just don't get what you do. You're never going to please everyone and you just need to know your market niche. I think that's the mm. biggest thing. I mean, it's amazing for me to say, yeah, I want to do 100 of these, but that's not realistic. You've got to understand mm. the balance. But yeah, just know who your niche is and don't try and, you know, Keep hold of what the essence of your brand is, mm. but make sure you can sell it. Otherwise, you'll be living on the street. Yeah. <laughs> or working at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. You see similar things in film and animation, don't we? You know, where you, that, that focusing, you know, deciding what it is that you want to produce and not being swayed by the huge presence of other kinds of designer out there. I mean, it's so easy nowadays. Well, I, just, well, I also think it's the other way. Like, I, I see the market so overly saturated with boring clothes. Yeah. So I'm like, why would I want to produce something that's already there at a cheaper <laughs> price point, which mm -hmm. is going to be going on sale in two weeks? <laughs> so I don't I know. I just think I'd rather create something exclusive not everyone's going to have. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's an interesting piece. It's a piece of art as well. Mm. Right, let's move on from the hot guy to... Oh, that's it. Well, let's go back. <laughs> so um, I've got one, one final question, um, which I... Um, we'll go back. Come on, let's just do it. There we go. So um, one final question, and this is something that really interests me. Um, in your, you have a sort of a design process, anybody that has a sort of creative practice has a sort of process. Is there um, any sort of point in, in the process you go through to create a piece that, that stands out as significant for you? Yeah. 
and it's <laughs> annoying because it's always usually about 3.30 in the morning and you're just like, ah, oh, it's that point of either you stay up and keep going or you go to bed. And usually if you go to bed, you it's can't over. get it's over. Yeah. But if you go that bit further, I always find there's something happens. Um, that clog, which I had for the headpiece, which actually probably won Melbourne Cup for me. I was just sitting there like, oh, so this, blah, blah, blah. And I just looked at the clocks there and I'm like, I'm going to pull that apart. And it just literally nearly cut my head off because that spring just like spiraled out. Yeah. And it was, I was like, oh my God, I think I actually, yeah, I did cut myself. But at those times, it's when you're also almost like not in your natural state, I think. Yeah. I don't take drugs. Yeah. But I don't know, it's, you know, it's that not. You're you know, kind of guard, your, your guard is down and yeah. you're. You're, you're sort of fatigued and, and I think, interesting you know, stuff. you're hallucinating a bit, like yeah. from tiredness. You know, I was making that outfit. I made it in about five days and mm. the headpiece was the last bit and I told everyone that the headpiece was the bit that I designed first. Mm. But it was actually the last part because I, you know, and so it kind of worked because I was tired. Yeah. So in a way it's like, you know, you read, you know, you get taught to be sensible and plan things and use your time effectively. Well, the thing is, you know, everyone can draw a picture. They can draw it and figure out how they want it to be. Jenny would know. You have the design there and then you cut out the pattern and then it doesn't work. So then you start draping and then you figure out how each fabric works, each fold works. And it's, that's how I work. I hate patterns. Mm. Like I have a good pattern maker, but mm. I that's an art form in yeah. itself. So I, when I do stuff like that skirt, I tell my pattern maker, oh, can you do that? And she's like, don't even. And she's like, <laughs> you stay up to three o'clock and do that. So <laughs> that's for me, yeah. that for me is where I enjoy it because it's the bit where you're being purely creative. It's yeah. not numbers. Yeah. Ma like pattern making is about numbers and it's, I can't get my head around it. I'm like, I want my armhole about that big. Yeah. Not, 26 centimetres on the curve, like that does my head in. But, you know, draping I could do all night. Yeah. I sometimes think with the 3am thing, like, I used to tell myself that it's like, because everyone else is asleep, mm, no somehow like there's space. Have you not seen The Haunting of Emily Rose? No. Oh, because you know that you talk about 3am is the witching hour. Oh, really? And that's that when sense. if the devil wants to come and sort of, um, oh my God. that's when he, he keeps waking up <laughs> at 3am, yeah. Okay, we better move on. We're, um, we're chewing through this time. So, um, thanks, Anthony. Next, we've got lovely Ian to, um, to talk. Ian's got, Ian's got more of a, of a presentation. Do you want to drive? Uh, no, I'm okay from here, thanks. I'll tell you what to do. Um, so yeah, I'm coming at this uh, at tonight from a very different perspective from everyone else because I'm not actually, you know, I'm coming from the animation industry, the, the film industry, and, you know, it, and as a, a real sort of adjacent to the fashion industry. So it's totally fascinating hearing everything that you guys are talking and, you know, I'll be uh, plenty talky later in the, in the <laughs> Q&A session. But um, I'm just going to run through my presentation talking about more a, a personal take on Project Runway, the TV show. But just to sort of uh, show you a little bit of our uh, fashion cred, I want to show a little bit of our, our work as well. So um, the first thing is a, uh, it's a short clip of, it's an iPad exclusive magazine concept uh, we put together. This is uh, top secret, by the way. We have to tell everybody. Yeah, so. <laughs> Not anymore. Um, <laughs> we, 
I, yeah, I find that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that we put together with um, Remy Parango, the former art director of Dazed and Confused and uh, Vogue on Japan. Mm -hmm. So um, if we just run this first clip, and JJ, if you could swap this. So I should have faded that one out, I guess. <laughs> um, so, um, no, thank you. <laughs> so uh, this example was just—it was just a concept uh, to explore Lady Gaga's brand, and it's—it's it's only an exploration of that. I just want to be really clear that um, you shouldn't expect Gagazine to come out um, anytime. But um, I'm happy to say that the concept has been brought to life as uh, the Stella McCartney app and uh, Post Magazine, both available on the iPad App Store right now. So go and uh, buy a truckload of it today. <laughs> um, and also, uh, other things that we've been working on together, sort of bringing our animation work into the fashion industry, is it's very iPad related. And it's a really exciting time for me, because you know, I, I look at fashion from afar, and coming from a more filmy background, I wonder, I always used to wonder how how do I get more involved with this? And uh, with the way that tech is working these days, fortunately there's a hell of a lot of opportunities coming forward mm -hmm. for us. So uh, one of the last things that we did was the first animated cover for Vogue on Japan. Um, so you, um, when you buy Vogue on Japan on the iPad, it yeah. loads up, it has this rich animated cover. So it's changing the idea of the traditional fashion mm -hmm. photography shoot, bringing in the moving image. Um, but uh, that's, I kind of want to take all that stuff and uh, put it to the side for now, though, because really I wanted to talk about Project Runway because it's, you know, it's a show that I love to bits, and um, it's, it's had a profound effect on me, sort of like the Lee Bowery clip for Dave. It's really reframed <laughs> like a, a lot of stuff in my life. So um, when I watch Project Runway, I always have my designer's hat on and my filmmaker's hat for sure. But there's a third hat which makes Project Runway extra special for me, and that's you know my gay man's hat. 
and uh, whatever the hell that looks like. But for whatever sexuality, made of a clock. <laughs> yeah, totally, <laughs> a clock. She said. Um, so for whatever sexuality, Project Run Runway undeniably is great TV. It's captivating drama, um, and the Australian and American versions are, you know, particularly excellent in that sense. Um, if you see, like, I don't know if you guys are aware, but it's, I think there's something about 30 different versions of it worldwide now. There's a Filipino one, apparently. Mm. Is there? I want to be a judge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, 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 one of the Korean contestants from Project Runway, like, season six, I think, went to Project Runway Korea and was oh, a judge wow. on that. But she didn't speak <laughs> Korean, so. Yeah, I didn't speak Korean. Do you speak Korean? You have to do a lot tick. of shaking and nodding. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. silent. <laughs> so um, I see it as like a genuinely original reality TV that you know helps great designers find their audiences, as we've sort of been talking about tonight. But what makes it so special for me is that it proudly presents dozens and dozens of creative gay role models, and I really want to emphasize the creative here. So gays on TV are nothing particularly new. Um, we've had visibility for decades now, and it's hard to say where it really started, but you know, in my research, it really seems that like Billy Crystal's character, Jodie Dallas on the show Soap, is a really good place to start. It was a uh, show on the, in the States in the 1970s. Uh, I don't even know if it showed in Australia. Okay, but um, I just wanted to have a, uh, a look at the clip here. Jody, you're going to get married, huh? Yeah, it uh, looks that way. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I guess that means you're not gay. No way, Jessica, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, Jody, when we were younger, there was no such thing as homosexuals. <laughs> yes, there are, Jessica. The homosexuals go way back in history. Who? Alexander the Great was gay. Uh, Plato was gay. Plato? <laughs> Mickey Mouse's dog was gay? <laughs> 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 hey, Jessica, would you be very offended if I didn't continue this conversation? <laughs> Yes, what, Jess? Did you ask Eric B about his affair? <laughs> Did you ask Bert about his affair? No. Listen, I know you two need to be helpful, but it's my marriage, and I have to handle this my own way. You're right, Mary. You're absolutely right. Mickey Mouse had a gay dog? <laughs> You didn't know? <laughs> First I heard of it. Goofy was his lover. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm not really going to go into any deep analysis here, but um, Jody uh, is, is uh, played by Billy Crystal. Is, uh, a gay man who gets seduced by a woman and ends up fathering her child. And uh, so maybe 
you know, for gays on TV, it's a little politically diluted, but, you know, still in terms of representations, I think, you know, it's a great starting point. And, you know, undoubtedly the, pro the case has, like, really progressed from there. So whether it's been, like, uh, queer as folk on, like, Channel 4 or even, like, Waylon Smith is in The Simpsons or through, like, you know, like, Will and Grace, Six Feet Under, Oz, Torchwood, Law and Order, uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And uh, let's not forget John Goodman's incredible portrayal of Uncle Butch in Normal Ohio, if anybody here has seen that. Um, I see a lot of blank faces out in the <laughs> like audience. <what>? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think this one lasted the whole season, so I want to uh, show you a little clip of this one, too, and maybe it'll answer why. <laughs> Admit it, Pamela, you don't know how to drive. Yeah, well, then maybe you should have gotten a taxi to pick you up at the airport. A taxi would have stopped when the lights turned red. It would have smelled better. Yeah, well, you're just mad because you ran out of gas. No, I'm dirty and sweaty because we ran out of gas. I'm mad at the jerk who taught you how to drive. Well, that would be you, big brother. <laughs> Gee, it's great to be home. Listen, you don't have to stay with me if you don't want to, Butch. Mom and Dad have a guest room. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I would never send you to mom and dad. Come here. Well, my friend's parents are dead. Yeah, well, the grass is always greener. Robbie, Kimberly, come on down here. Look who's here from Los Angeles. Oh, hi. Hi, Uncle Butch. Hi, Robbie. Wow, Pamela, it's been four years and you've kept them both alive. I happen to be a very good mother. She thinks if she keeps saying that, it'll come true. <laughs> so, uh, Uncle Butch, is it true that you ran away to Los Angeles because you're gay? No, Robbie. <laughs> That's not true. I ran away to Santa Monica. I just can't believe you come all the way back to Ohio for a party. Well, my son is going off to med school, and, well, we go way back. <laughs> oh, oh, it's Friday. Oh, my God, I forgot. I have a date. Oh, going out with a guy who haunts, huh? Let's see. Does he have a brother? So, uh, Uncle Bush, what do you like? Kiss guys? <laughs> Can you picture me kissing guys? No, I can't. Well, I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so check it out. It's another scripted comedy featuring a gay man fathering children, you know, however you feel about that uh, politically. So, you know, there's lots of comedies here and like all the examples I reeled off. And, you know, there's lots of reality TV shows with lots of you know, featured gay folks in it. And that's not to really dismiss any of them. They've done a hell of a lot of work for gay rights and recognition worldwide. Um, for example, Pedro Zamora, the HIV-positive fellow from uh, the third season of The Real World, um, who, according to its creator, John Murray, crossed over from the entertainment pages into the news pages. So, like, Zamora's work both on and off TV, um, whether it was in Congress uh, or, like, uh, just in interviews, uh, got recognized by, by uh, Bill Clinton and was really lauded for his work. But, you know, we can contrast with contrast all that with what's, you know, what's happening today. Like, for example, just this morning, the U.S. State Department has uh, made a real, uh, 
landmark statement and uh, with the UN. So let me just uh, quote what it said in the press release this morning. Um, in conjunction with the session, the United States led a groundbreaking effort to get 85 UN member states to join a statement supporting the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. So taken collectively, the actions taken by the 16th Human Rights Council represent a significant positive change in the Council's trajectory. So collectively, they're saying, finally, what Hillary Clinton has been saying for a while now, gay rights are human rights. So while a lot of this stuff has happened since the real world season three, which incidentally is on its 25th season now, um, I think that we can at least attribute some of the progress that we've made to some of the work of uh, the gay people that have appeared on TV, whether it's actors or whether it's the uh, writers, including gay characters. So to me, personally, that's pretty huge. So how does this fit into Project Runway? Um, for me, it carries on, it carries on this work of uh, positively representing gay people, but also takes it a step in a really different direction. So at a certain point, the, image, uh, the images of acceptance and integration from mainstream TV, like Normal Ohio, I think they start to erode every gay person's sense of specialness and like queerness and really start to underrepresent gays in creative industries where rule breaking is you know, absolutely essential. So in this, if we take this to like an extreme, this creates a world where gay people sort of aspire to grow up to be lawyers, doctors, management, and civil servants on only, you know, so get rid of all the fashion designers, get rid of uh, people in theater, whatever, artists. And so it's kind of, you know, it's an extreme case, but it's a swing of political correctness gone way too far. So. This vision, you know, of course it sounds absurd, and it probably is not going to happen at all. And I think we'll have Project Runway to thank for that, uh, because it gives screen time to the gay role models who don't sacrifice their creativity and identity for the mainstream, uh, for the sake of mainstream TV's ideas of, like, integration. So the next clip that I want to show really embodies this idea for me, so uh, take a look. This print of symbolism for who I am now, it's just very, very personal, and it tells a story. I wish I knew what the story was. <laughs> um, you know what? It's, it's terrific. Thank you. It looks really good. This does say fashion to me. I love the way that you're not scared of mixing prints or colors. I think she looks sharp. I think those pants look great. They're tad high-waisted, but she looks phenomenal. Thank you. You know, this fabric and color and pattern mix is really something that you excel at. There's a sharpness to it, and it has joy. Can I see it without the jacket? Yeah. She looks fabulous, just bare. Thank you. I love the pant. I love the fit. It's something that I personally would love to wear, and I think you've styled her beautifully. The one thing that holds me up is the inspiration. So things that he's been through in his life, and yet the print that you created is so kind of perfect. And I would assume that no one's life is perfect. So that just mentally got me kind of started off on the wrong foot. So just in the future, as you're thinking of inspiration, think of it with the, the garment um, in mind. Thank you. I think it's great. 
Thank you. It is so well put together <laughs> in a kind of cookie way. They make a statement. And it's editorial. I mean, if I had to shoot something, that would be it. Nina, uh, you asked me what my story was, and um, the symbolism in the pant actually are um, these pluses, are positive signs, and I've been uh, HIV positive for 10 years. And when I saw these um, pictures of my family. It brought back a lot of emotion. And so I wanted to pull from the past, but I also wanted to give something back of who I am now. And that I've been so scared of and hiding from. And that's just, that's the story. Thank you for sharing that with us, Wanda. That was very brave of you. Thank you. I, you know, I feel a lot better. I feel free. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, when I was finding that clip, earlier I'd watched the entire episode and uh, I was totally bawling after that <laughs> so I'm sorry for making this evening kind of intense but um, you know on a personal note I really wish that I had seen Project Runway when I was a younger kid sort of like Dave you know even though I grew up in New York it's still you know mainstream media is is was a m much different beast than it is today and much more conservative and uh, particularly in the States um, at that time with uh, where I was growing up, it was, you know, I found it really difficult. Um, and so, you know, m my story is just uh, one in a zillion, but, and like many others, you know, I really struggled to come out because I didn't really like what being out entailed. Um, looking at stuff like Normal Ohio and stuff, even though it's a, it's a funny show, it's kind of, it was never really... Uh, an honest depiction for me. And even when you get certain shows like The Real World, you know, it was, uh, the gay card was oftentimes like this thing about intensity and... Or an obstacle that yeah. other people had to... Yeah, yeah exactly, or an obstacle. And um, it felt like I really had pretty limited depressing options. And gay people didn't seem to do anything creative, and if they did, they were mocked for it. Um, so, you know, let alone actually be celebrated for what they do. So maybe seeing Project Runway and it's, you know, dozens of role models like that guy Mondo that we just saw would have made things a little bit easier for the creative gay guy inside of me. But nevertheless, you know, to be a bit happier, I'm super thrilled that we have it now. And, you know, I'm totally addicted to the show. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that really keeps me coming back is that sort of idea of a real complete Gale, gay role model of like it's what <laughs> yeah well you know speaking of, speaking of him on on uh, as a sort of a, a last note I'd like to show a clip of uh, Tim Gunn the mentor from Project Runway uh, America Hi I'm Tim Gunn and I have a very important message for gay lesbian 
questioning youth. And that is, it gets better. It really does. And you may be thinking, what does Tim Gunn understand about my anguish, about my despair, about how I'm feeling, about my particular time and place in the world right now? Well, I'll share with you, as a 17-year-old youth who was in quite a bit of despair, I attempted to kill myself. And I'm very happy today that that attempt was unsuccessful. But at the time, it's all that I could contemplate. I thought I need to end things right now. And I have to tell you, when I woke up the next morning after taking more than 100 pills, I was in a whole other level of despair. I thought, I shouldn't be here. This isn't what was meant to be. Um, I frankly just wanted to start life all over again. There are people who can help you. You cannot do this alone. That's an, another very profound message that I want to give to all of you. It really requires a collaboration between you and the people who love you, the people who you can depend upon no matter who they are as mentors. In my case, it took a very serious intervention to help me, um, and it was the result of the botched suicide attempt, to be blunt. I am a huge advocate for the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is a suicide prevention hotline for GLBT and questioning youth. And please visit their website, the trevorproject.org, um, and seek them out. Your uh, identity will be protected. Um, you don't have to worry about getting your parents involved if you're so inclined. Um, I understand the desperation. I understand uh, the despair. And I understand how isolated you can feel. And you have a lot of, get very emotional, people really care about you, and I'm included in that group. So reach out, get help, you're not alone. It will get better, I promise. So uh, that's it for me. I want to say thanks to Tim Gunn, and you know, thanks to everyone involved with Project Runway, because. I think that it's uh, an amazingly positive force, and uh, thank you all for listening. Love the Japanese screen he picked to be in front of. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking about too. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay, I think we'll I think um, we'll save questions at the end for Ian. Um, I think, uh, in the interest of time, we want to move on to Patty. Um, so, as mentioned in Anna's introduction, um, Patty uh, represents a huge uh, experience space in a whole broad church of areas: um, contemporary fashion journalism, fashion blogging, TV production. You're kind of like, sort of, you know, Renaissance figure within the sort of contemporary fashion space. Um, what I wanted to do is ask you a few questions and just sort of um, hear about your experience, experiences, really, because um, we've talked a lot about where fashion's at and where it's been and the problems that define the contemporary space. But I'm interested in your perspective uh, on um, what the new trends are in the kind of, not so much fashion trends as in clothing, but fashion trends as in the business of talking about and writing about and contextualizing fashion. Um, I just want, I just was um, particularly interested in your sort of personal um, blogging history. Um, I was wondering if you could tell the people about that. Okay. Well, I mean, look, just in a nutshell, 
I mean, where is the, the dialogue of fashion going? I mean, <clears throat> it's a revolution, which everyone would obviously be aware of. I mean, any, you know, the media is undergoing a revolution, so obviously the fashion media is involved in that as well. But look, from a, um, my personal story, I mean, I'm a Sydney-based journalist who's been writing about fashion for over 20 years, quite a long time. Um, started in radio, uh, went into print, uh, was living in Paris. Um, actually, that's where I was working in radio. Came back, bought some interviews. <coughs> I did three interviews with uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Azadine Alaya, and Karl Lagerfeld, and thought I'd bring them back. And that's, that's when I started selling stories to magazines. Um, then went, you know, continued selling stories to newspapers, got a full-time job in a magazine called Studio Magazines. I don't know if anyone recalls Studio. So it's still going in some respects, but um, uh, worked at Rag Trader. I edited Rag Trader for a year, which is the Australian industry, um, fashion industry news magazine. Uh, then segued into television. <laughs> um, I had, a, I had a, a cover story of a magazine called The Independent Monthly, which again, I don't know whether anyone recalls. It was a great monthly uh, since, sadly, since defunct uh, Current Affairs magazine. And I proposed a story on copying in the Australian fashion industry. And it ran, as, 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 to this day, I think it's actually the longest feature I've ever sold um, to any publication in Australia. 4,000 words, it was a cover story. And three different programs, um, ABC Review, an arts program, A Current Affair, and someone else um, escapes me, but they all sort of did stories on it and interviewed me, and it sort of got me thinking, maybe television would be quite interesting. So I actually, um, and used the connection from that, went to A Current Affair, of all places, uh, for um, just a brief stint as a researcher, then went to Today Tonight, where I stayed for three and a half years. And while, look, many people turn up their noses at um, reality, well, not reality, sorry, at tabloid current affairs programs like... Um, Today, tonight, and the current affair. I have to say, from a journalistic um, point of view, it's actually an incredible experience because uh, there is no more competitive um, media experience anywhere. I mean, these these are cutthroat programs that um, that are just you know fighting with the other sort of for talent. I mean, obviously sometimes they pay people, but otherwise you know they've got all the researchers and producers out on the road trying to get the talent. So um, that was a great experience and. Look, because my interest was uh, my main interest is fashion. I tried to get as much fashion as I could in um, in at today tonight. And look, it wasn't that easy, particularly in the beginning. But in the end, it wasn't easy from the point of view of getting the producers to want to do fashion stories. Because as I mentioned before, um, my experience certainly in commercial television in Australia is that everyone thinks that fashion is elitist and wanky and over the heads of the punters, as I like to call them, the, the people who obviously watch the programs, and therefore unless there's some kind of tabloid angle to it, they tend not to be interested. But um, but I have to say also, from the point of view of the PR people and the fashion people, it also wasn't easy in the beginning because I remember um, wanting to get cameras into various events and being told by PR companies, we don't want Today Tonight there because they thought that it was really down market. And uh, But <clears throat> all it took was a couple of exclusives, like, I don't know, we did Leona Edmiston's, you know, first collection, um, exclusive on that, Akira Isagawa's Australian Fashion Week uh, debut. You had the exclusive on that, and people were just, like, beating a path to the door of, of today's night because, of course, it reaches um, such a wide audience of people at 6.30 at night. Um, sorry, then went from television, left television, to go back into print full-time, uh, somewhere along that, uh, in that space, became Women's Wear Daily's Australasian correspondent. Uh, I've always been a correspondent... Um, you know, either from Paris to Australia or from Australia to the rest of the world. So 
Uh, and as a freelance journalist, I've got to say, um, anyone who wants to survive as a freelance journalist, having international clients is actually a, a real key, especially if you can get a currency swing, <laughs> which you wouldn't be at the moment with America, obviously. Um, sometime in the last 10 years went to the Sydney Morning Herald as their fashion reporter and it was while I was at the, the Herald um, and Fairfax was doing what many media outlets have been doing over the past 15 years and that is you know, trying how to integrate their offline and their offline um, businesses and as the fashion reporter for the Herald uh, smh.com.au uh, approached me and said look we really want to go really big on Australian Fashion Week this season this was in 2006 and would you do a blog and I said, sure, um, uh, would you do multimedia video? So I kind of brought a bit of my television um, background into that. I mean, of course, I, I was aware of, I mean, as everyone was in 2006, of, of blogs. But um, funnily enough, there weren't uh, very many at all um, at mainstream newspapers. And in fact, this was before Cathy Horan had launched her blog at the New York Times about, I think, four or five months before. So I kind of had to say to them, well, what do you want me to put in the blog? And, I mean, it was really just... Um, you know, one of those suck it and see type situations. I mean, the thing I learned very quickly about blogging is that blogging can be anything. I mean, it can be, you know, a, a print story has to, or a news story has to be sort of fairly, you know, it has a sort of certain standard format, whereas blogging can be, um, and it can be analysis, it can be a photo, it can be a bit of gossip, it can be absolutely anything. So mm. that's where I started blogging. Then I went to news.com.au um, as their fashion reporter and had another blog there called Fully Chic. I'm not sure if anyone here read that. Um, and then uh, in 2008 um, launched my own blog, Frock Writer, which is just coming up to three years. And uh, yeah, so there you go, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, oh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, so the blogging space, I mean, anybody who's been following the sort of fashion debates recently there's um, at New York Fashion Week most recently there were a series of really quite intense panels where industry figures were seriously talking about what they were going to do about all this blogging malarkey that's right you know like what are we going to do these people are coming to our shows writing about them <laughs> taking photos no taking their seats that's the main yeah. beef that's the main beef of the of the establishment so it's about turf. It's a turf war. Oh, yeah, absolutely, war. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it, it is, um, you know, you've got to remember that these, these people have fought very hard to get to the front row. I mean, it's, I remember, um, you know, with Hilary Alexander, who actually is a Kiwi, who, who went to the UK, and everyone thinks she's British, but she's actually a New Zealander. Um, and, I mean, she had to, in order for the... I mean, it's probably a similar situation to Today Tonight and Fashion PR. She had to basically, you know, show how much coverage she'd done um, with her newspaper before she was sort of accepted, you know, from the, from the, the bleachers down and got closer and closer and closer. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've fought very hard to... And they all have their positions there. Um, a lot of them have been in the job for a very long time. And all of a sudden you've got these people coming along like Brian Boy, who could you, mm. is your, your long-lost twin. Um, <laughs> Brian Boy, for anyone who might not be familiar with him, although you should be because he's come to Australia twice now at fashion, fashion events, a uh, Filipino-based uh, blogger, um, blogging from his bedroom in his parents' house, obsessed with fashion, uh, just built this incredible audience. And then, you know, at some point Mark Jacobs named a handbag after him and... That was it. I mean, that was just when the mainstream media sort of caught hold of it. So all of a sudden you've got these people at fashion shows who've, you know, I mean, 
most of them, I mean, obviously with exceptions of people like the sartorialist who's in his 40s and mm. Diane Purnay who is in her 60s, mm. uh, I mean, most of them are sort of in their 20s, uh, they've been in the business for five minutes, and there they are all of a sudden front row taking these prize positions. And um, So do you think it might, it might be a trend? It's like, it's cute to have this and then and there'll be some kind of like restoration of this. Well, interestingly, the last season, because a lot, uh, I mean, we have, to, we have actually Dolce Gabbana to, to thank for the sort of, because um, 18 months ago, they had this very well photographed publicity stunt where they put about, you know, five, they put Scott Schumann, who's a sartorialist, Brian Boy, Tommy Ton from Jack and Jill, uh, I can't remember, I think Garon Storé was also there, in their front row alongside Anna Winter, um, and all these uh, Susie Menkes and, and then this famous photo of Brian Boy and, and he said since you know he's looking up at the camera he felt like a rabbit in the headlights like what the hell am I doing here um, but you know that was kind of the start and then we had of course Tavi the little 14 year old girl from America and I mean of course you know people are even more incensed about her because I mean she's not even an adult you know and there she is in the front row and, it, and in one show she was wearing this giant bow hat and these sort of you know, senior sort of fashion figures are behind her having to look at the couture pieces through the, you know, through her Stephen Jones hat. So, so it's, um, it, it, it's interesting, but, you know, they're there for a reason. Um, it's not just because they're journalists, because, of course, they're not journalists, but, I mean, they're, they're reporters. Um, I mean, they're celebrities. It's not just journalists in the front row. It's celebrities. So, you know, they have... They, they, they've commanded a, a, a significant portion of sort of media real estate... And the designers want them there. They're photographed, they're talked about, and they have themselves quite big audiences. So I don't know, but interestingly, last season, Brian Boy was third row at Marc Jacobs. Tavi, I think, was second row. So it, possibly there may be a bit of um, adjustment going on. Mm. But it's interesting what you say about them being celebrities. It's almost like you could chart a path from the kind of, you know, the Vogue decision to put celebrities on the cover. Mm. Through, you know, it's almost like the the butterfly beats its wings over there and then you end up with Brian Boy on the front row. It's like, if we're going to live in a culture where reality television creates stars and the internet creates stars, Absolutely. then we have to deal with their celebrity status. Yeah. It's almost like an old media, new media... Well, absolutely. Mm. And, you know, another reason why the, the old guard... Well, not all, but most... Uh, and, you know, like, I mean, I, I count myself amongst the old guard because I'm a traditionally trained journalist who's mm. been, you know, writing about fashion for, you know, much longer than I've been blogging about it. I mean, they haven't moved forward and they, they haven't upskilled. Mm. Um, you know, some of them might be on Facebook or... I mean, they've come very reluctantly to the table. Mm. A lot of their... I mean, the, you know, their employers are sort of making them do videos and, and, and things, I mean, making them participate in it. But, I mean, Susie Manker still is not on Twitter. Mm. Um, I mean, some people might think that that's a good thing because a lot of people still are very, are, are very allergic to Twitter. But, uh, you know, you can't deny. I mean, you can't deny that it's a new reportage medium. Mm. And, I mean, people do need to be in it. I was reading on your blog about the, the whole boom in the sort of amateur fashion photographer and, this, and these kind of, like... It, co it connects to the bloggers in my mind, this idea of people coming into the fashion space, which defines itself as highly skilled and, mm -hmm. it, you know, in some respects elitist and so on. And suddenly you've got the, the, the kind of presence of people who are sort of autodidacts, you know, these self-taught people. Um, what, from your point of view, what's, been, what, what's the story around the whole amateur fashion photography scene and, like, um, why is it, you know, what's, what's the sort of current controversy that you were... Highlighting. Well, I think the, the post you were talking about was yeah. about a, a 
a lookbook, not exactly a campaign, but um, Puma Australia had commissioned Zanita Whittington. I'm not sure if anyone knows Zanita. She's a model turned blogger, turned photographer. Her, her blog's called Zanita Zanita. And uh, I mean, she's become quite a good photographer. Uh, and they commissioned her to do this lookbook. And um, I just mentioned in the post that, you know, here's yet, yet another example of, of a campaign that might have gone to a, a well-known professional, you know, photographer that's gone to a, a blogger. Uh, I mean, Scott mm. Schumann, the sartorialist, has done various campaigns. So has, um, so has Jack and Jill's Tommy Tom. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's, I think, resentment. I mean, like, I, I mean, I feel sorry for the photographers because, I mean, you know, they've trained for years. They have all this really expensive equipment. And here come these, here come these the people that, you know, have been in it for five minutes. They might have a great DSLR camera, like me, put it on automatic, hope for the best. And, uh, but, you know, they also have their own audiences. I mean, they, they, they bring to the campaign, um, I mean, you, you know, any photographer does, you know, there might be great photographs, but you don't know much else about the photographer, whereas mm. these people bring an additional talking point. Mm. It's mm. like a collaboration, That's right. isn't it? Mm. So, like they're doing in stores between the designers and, and the brands, mm. this is just someone else's brand, mm. which is a self-made brand and part mm. of the time that we are, mm. collaborating with, uh, with another brand. Mm. And also it's like, talking about, you know, these people have their audiences, they're new audiences, it's not like that's a right. loss of the old That's audience. right, yeah. it's, it's new so business. It's an expansion. Absolutely, and that's what collaborations do, they expand mm. your audience and your target market. Mm. So we've got some of your... Fashion photography here, Patty. And I was starting with this, it's talking about sort of controversy. It's not just the. Sometimes the public also feel a bit, um, feel a bit uh, nervous. And this particular photo was taken on a BlackBerry um, at Australian. My, I mean, my BlackBerry, obviously, um, at Australian Fashion Week uh, two, three years ago, mm. which was the first Australian Fashion Week where Twitter really took over. I mean, it was actually before any international um, Fashion Week had sort of been revolutionised by Twitter. So it was almost like, I mean, we were actually early. And uh, I use this particular photo now as the ID for my blog. It was taken at Dion Lee's first show, and it's just, I mean, it's, you can't really see the colours that well um, on the screen up there, but I, don't know, I just really like it. It's like kind of impressionism. And I, I mean, you know, personally, I like it. But I have to say that when um, we were all using our Blackberries and iPhones and stuff to tweet from the front row, there was actually a bit of a backlash from people on Twitter, I had blog, negative blog comments, people saying, oh, you know, we come to you for analysis and you've just reduced your blog to a series of status updates and then these crappy photos, you know, <laughs> stop taking photos, you're not a photographer. <laughs> it's quite funny. We called it pluralism. You, we, <laughs> we were going to have an exhibition, actually. But this, this, whole, this whole this aesthetic of, of the very quick snapshot is feeding back into the um, planned shoots for contemporary fashion as mm. well. It's like, you know, there, there is that kind of swing. In the same way that the kind of Polaroid, washed out, um, flash photography aesthetic, you know, you know, sort of via Kareem Day sort of mm -hmm. came into fashion. This is just another new aesthetic. So well, people, and people calling, I mean, cell phone photography is a, is a whole new genre. Mm. I mean, they're calling the cell phone sort of like the new... Polaroid. Mm. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's it, 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 it's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I there's a quite a, there's a few after that. Mm. I took. I mean, obviously, not a lot of photos that you take from you know from on, on a BlackBerry or an iPhone are just crap. I mean, I you know I admit that they are. I mean, th this is an example of a photo. If you have the right light, I mean, even with a little three megapixel um, camera on a cell phone, you can actually it can actually be really. I mean, that's this backstage at the Kate Sylvester show. Uh, that's another photo that I like. Um, this was backstage at David Jones again. Um, 
but I mean, like most bloggers and self-taught, um, you know, all-in-one sort of people, uh, I mean, I have since acquired a DSLR camera, and I think the next photos, uh, I mean, a DSLR camera, you know, on automatic, if you know nothing about lighting, <laughs> I mean, sooner or later you're going to get some good photos. I <laughs> just, this is backstage at the, uh, and I, I've since, um, that's Abby Lee Kershaw backstage at another David Jones show, uh, I mean, I, I've, you know, I have to take my own photos because, I mean, obviously I can, I mean, I can borrow and, you know, link to other people, but it's, I mean, if you're there and you have the equipment, you might as well do your own. Mm. And I am learning about lighting. I mean, you can learn the technique. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I've also been using the BlackBerry um, to do live streaming. I don't know if the Mr. Video is up there. Have you got mm. the, the videos, Sartorialist one? I was using the BlackBerry, you can get apps to live stream. Um, I was actually hey, we're not just backstage, we're sort of out, actually outside. Yeah. Um, what were you just doing then? You were just doing putting your voice down. That's not the sartorialist, obviously, that's Miranda Kerr. Yes, that will be on tonight, 6.30, Home Care. It's a special behind the scenes um, little segment that we just did for the David Jones show. You've done a little bit of reporting here and there, haven't you, in the last, in the last few years? <laughs> yeah, a little bit for Victoria's Secret. Just, you know, keep it light. I mean, do you ever kind of nothing serious? Do you ever think that television? I mean, are you looking at a television career in the future? Or? For now, I'm just so busy, like doing what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I pretty much take opportunities as they present themselves to me. So, you know, we'll see. But I, for now, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. So, tell me, what, what are you working on at the moment? But obviously, you're doing David Jones, and that's that's going to occupy you for how long? A couple of weeks. Two weeks. Right, yes. going around the country. Yes, and then I fly back to New York. Is life busier? Yeah. Is life busier than it was last year? See, she um she did have a baby, but that was taken using a. It was obviously David Jones, not Sartorialist. That was taken using an app called Quick, uh, and it was live streamed to Twitter or via Twitter if you if you follow Twitter. Or I have Twitter integrated with my Facebook, so if you follow it on Facebook, you can follow it that way. Uh, and then it records it, obviously. Um, but I mean, it's amazing. There's a, there's a half a dozen applications you can get to live stream video. Uh, mm. So I mean, talking about reality television, mm. I mean the internet. You know, I mean. Everyone is sort of recording reality, you know, whether mm. it's photos, video. Um, 
you know, blogging, tweeting, Tumblr, mm. posterous. Uh, it's just mm. never ending. And it, do you do you think it kind of the the quickness and the immediateness? I can imagine that that produces some tension with traditional editorial in the sense that like you're getting um, a kind of um, a kind of access and a kind of immediacy which even the quickest traditional journalistic streams you know you're waiting a you know a day mm. at least absolutely you know. but I mean we're starting to see that I mean we're starting to see that with you know, with news coverage around the world, I mean, everything that's happened sort of in the Middle East, I mean, the, what's coming out, you know, before anyone can mobilise and, and sort of get reporters, and sometimes they can't get reporters in mm. there, you know, there are obviously citizen journalists, um, you know, filing, uplo uploading images, video, <clears throat> sometimes there's a question of obviously, um, you know, a firewall, and there's various means why, you know, by which they can get the images out. But even in Australia, I mean, I remember with the, uh, the cyclone in Queensland, um, both the ABC and I think it was Channel 7, were using Skype. Um, mm. They couldn't get an uplink to get a live uh, satellite feed out of the, the was it Tully, the, 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 you know, the, the most badly damaged area, but they had, um, what's his name, Grant Denier, out mm. there with, a, with, with his phone mm. and, uh, and Skype. And sure, it was blurry, but it was better than, was better you know, to have those than no pictures at all. And often mm. the sound is quite good. In those contexts, yeah, I mean, so. I mean, the, the the sound that you can get on a, on, a, on a little handheld is remarkably good. So mm. I think we're we're willing in certain circumstances to sacrifice quality for access and immediacy. And you know, mm. it's everyone's used to it now, aren't they? Mm. Uh, I mean, look, mm. when I was at Today Tonight ten years ago, uh, well, of course, the internet. Well, the internet was there, but it was in its infancy. But you would never have seen. YouTube clips put up on television. I went back um, a year ago for six weeks and stayed six months, and you know they, they actually were using Skype interviews and things. So mm. a lot's changing. I was that actually segues quite nicely into what I was going to ask you about. Um, you know, we do a lot of new media work, and very often we encounter these sort of industries where the old guard, for want of a better word, have um, um, a kind of a sort of vested interest in res actively resisting um, those kind of changes. I the mean, tin hat brigade. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, in your experience, have you found that the, the, you know, as you've proposed things to companies, you've met with a sort of d great deal of resistance? Well, as I said, when I went back to Today Tonight just for six weeks and stayed six months, um, uh, Twitter was a dirty word at Today Tonight, I've got to say, even though other programs at Seven, like The Morning Show and Sunrise, are all they sort of seem to have people... I mean, they mm. laughed about it. You know, I, I, we did a, I produced a story, an interview with Addie Lee Kershaw, and I told the executive producer that, you know, it was, you know, it was all over online and you're all over Twitter, and he said, oh, gee, I know, I really made it now. And I felt like saying, well, actually, mate, you should be happy that you are on there. Mm. Um, and I remember being down in the Seven newsroom and while I was waiting to speak to someone, gave an impromptu Twitter... Um, Twitter sort of lesson to, to, to producers. So um, news is, I think, getting a bit faster. But yeah, I mean, it, some of these people actually think that it's just, they still think that it's just going to go away or it's never going to affect them, whereas what they actually really need to understand is they need to embrace it and to, uh, you know, I mean, just think what you could do if you have a social media audience for a program like Today Tonight or A Current Affair. I mean, A Current Affair actually has been far more proactive, so, yeah. One of the, th one of the things that I've noticed in the fashion world's interaction with Twitter is that there's um, generational stuff going on and also um, a learning curve. So like when you watch, say you watch Karl Lagerfeld's Twitter, 
it's very much a kind of broadcast medium. Mm. There's no interaction mm. with people, mm. and it's like his kind of statements of his knowledge and his dominance over his particular part of the industry. And it's interesting watching how some people evolve. So Nina Garcia, when she first came into Twitter and blogging, approached it as a kind of broadcast medium where she was sending out a very clear kind of um, message. And then she softened and became more reciprocal and was responding to people. And when she did that, suddenly it kind of exploded for her. And at the last Fashion Week, she's been, that's been the kind of, like, mm. sort of um, one of the core focuses for her is to actually meet with um, people from Twitter and Tumblr and so on and kind of have that reciprocal relationship. So I think you're seeing kind of a generational thing happening and people um, slowly softening in their approach because they're starting to understand... Some. Some, yeah. They're understanding that... It's not a broadcast medium so much as an access medium mm. that people want to be able to kind of, you know, ask a question and at least have some potential for an answer. But, I mean, that you're talking about the broadcast sort of mentality or approach, mm. but, I mean, you know, talking to the audience is very much the traditional... I mean, for, for all journalists, really, mm. um, and in fashion particularly, it's about what I say and you, you, know, you absorb or you take... What, and, you know, obviously a lot of people actually do want... I mean, they want to read Cathy Hoare and they want to read what she's got to say... Um, but obviously they have the ability now to... Anyone who reads Cathy Horan's um, blog in the New York Times on the runway, I mean, the comments are remarkable. And she's actually thrown over her column to, to the, the comments. I mean, uh, um, it'd be great to get some comments like that in Australia, I have to mm. say. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of journalists also... Not only are they not... I mean, they just... They, as I said, they think it's not going to affect them or it's going to go away or it's some kind of newfangled thing. And the way I do you know, things is always going to be the way... Uh, I think they also couldn't cope with the criticism. No. Like, you know, traditionally they... You know, the, the most, you know, experience that they will have with their audience if someone does a letter to the editor mm. or if they do something really bad and they get fired, they don't have to actually um, have their work analysed and critiqued uh, and I have to say, the quality of Australian fashion journalism in mainstream newspapers would be a hell of a lot better if uh, if there was more critique, because um, some of the stuff that gets published is really mm. a bit embarrassing. Okay. The um, I think it's probably about time that we open up to some questions, because I've covered my my uh, questions for the panel. Um, have we got roving microphones? Awesome. Okay. <laughs> There's a chap at the back who's got a question. Yeah? Oh, do you need a microphone? Yeah. Um, no. Oh, recording. Thank you. Um, good evening, and thank you for a very interesting presentation. Anthony, you rock, and so do you, Sarah, and Pat. One question and one comment. But um, how do you, as a fashion writer, um, go about deciding, because you've got advertising in, in your um, blog, mm -hmm. and obviously you, you have to rely on advertising as a stream of revenue, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about deciding what to cover and what not to cover? Um, do you see what I mean? Well, how, how do you mean? Whether, whether the advertisers have some sort of influence no, on, on what you cover and what events you get to cover and 
Well, that's, yeah. a, that's a fair enough question. Um, but I would love to rely on advertising. Because yes. <laughs> some bloggers do and heavily depend on Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, and that's, that's the big question with, with independent um, blogging is that, you know, whether or not you can monetize it. I've had, in almost 12 months, I've had two six-week campaigns. Um, I mean, it's really pocket money. It's not enough to live on. So, I mean, but I mean, that's a very good question. Um, I, there's a third party that handles advertising for me, a company called Pages Digital. Mm -hmm. Uh, they handle everything to do with it. Um, I mean, I have, you know, a say over the creative. If I didn't like, you know, the images or what have you, or if I didn't like the client. In fact, I recently turned down one campaign um, because, uh, for various reasons. I, 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 so, um, but I mean, I have absolutely, I have no contact with the advertiser. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have them on there if I didn't, you know, if there was something wrong with the ad. Um, but I mean, it's completely editorially independent. Yeah, well, which is very good, and that's why. I refer to you as a fashion writer rather than exclusively a fashion blogger. Some, some blogs only will cover you if you um, heavily advertise with them. Oh, and, right. Sorry, and my comment is without getting or wishing to get political, but I wanted to raise an issue that um, the gentleman in Teal um, referred... Sorry, I haven't got your name at this yeah. time. My Ian, is very short. Ian. Um, yeah. You um, said that um, it was very good for programs like Project Runway to have positive gay role models. Mm -hmm. I think that in the case of Anthony, Anthony is, a, is an excellent role model, uh, full stop. It doesn't have, an, it doesn't have to be um, an issue of sexuality like Anthony mentioned. The fact that he's an excellent role model and Project Runway, it's not about having to produce gay role models or not. It's about what Sarah said, it's about whether you can cut it or not, and certainly Anthony um, did. And I think that um, it was a little bit too um, political for my part um, to, or from, my, from where I see it, the whole issue of, you know, that certain programs, you know, um, what you like about that, that, that they represent a gale role model. And I think that in fashion it's, Sexuality is irrelevant these days. Yeah, well, I think um, yeah, uh, within the fashion industry, it's a def it's definitely a different kettle of fish for sure. And you know, it's it's kind of like preaching to the choir a little bit with everyone in here. I wasn't really sure of the audience that was going to be in here, but really, this is a you know, it's a personal issue for me. And given, I think the point you were making is the it's the thirteen year old kids who watch Project Runway on cable TV, who aren't in a sophisticated framework who don't necessarily have yeah. that in, you know. And within, I, I totally agree that uh, a lot of the success within, within Project Runway, the show itself, isn't about sexuality. And that's actually one of, the, one of the great things about it, is that it's a discussion about design, but behind it, there's this sort of, there is a layer of sexuality being discussed, but it's not completely overt, like something like, my examples like Normal Ohio or like Soap. It's just something that's integrated into the show in a very sort of elegant way. And um, it's, it's, never, it's, it's not an issue, and that's why I think I love it. Like, that's what makes it such a strong role model in a lot of ways. Hi, my question is to um, Patty, and I'm quite good at asking questions usually. Um, <laughs> I'm quite happy to be up here instead of down there. Um, Patty, and also this is to the rest of the panel as well too, is getting it back onto television, and in Australia, other than Project Runway and maybe Australia's Next Top Model, 
other and, and very similar uh, programs. There is no other fashion TV other nope. than fashion TV, which is a, a global um, a global thing. And isn't that, but isn't that sad? But I'd like to ask you why you think that is. I know, I think I know what it is, but I'd like to have your opinion on why you think that is. Why we've been so slow to catch up to America and to England and other English-speaking countries in regards to fashion television. Uh, I mean, I think sort of we kind of touched on it. and then Oh, well, I, was, I said that the broadcasters are actually like pretty much like the publishers think that fashion is elitist and wanky and over the heads of the audience. Therefore, um, yeah, and look, there have been attempts, but as I said, on, on each and every occasion... They dumb it down, and it's just dumb, and uh, and you know it just doesn't work because. So I mean, it's it's because of the it's because of the mediocrity. I mean, it's because of the middlemen, you know, the yeah, people who are making the decisions on um, on the programming. And uh, I do mean, you personally, do you think that there is room for it? Oh, absolutely. And what will happen? What will inevitably happen is that it will be done. I mean, look, and this has happened in America too, because you know you had things like. Sex in the City, Crew Up for the Straight Guy. I mean, they weren't done by mainstream um, broadcasters. They were done by Bravo and HBO. Uh, you know, those, those concepts were sort of offered to the big guys. I mean, look, you know, they have a lot of they have a lot of costs. They have to know that they can recoup costs. And you know, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't rate, uh, it, it, you know, they axe it. So um, I think what will happen though, there'll, there'll be independents who do stuff that just rates its socks off, is hugely successful, and then the big the big people will try and copy it. Um, but you know, we haven't sort of got to that point yet, have we? Um, I think I think it's a shame because I think there's there's a huge interest and again they just constantly um, underestimate the audience. But I mean I, you know I think the same thing goes for publishers quite frankly. Mm. And and have the rest of the panel right? anyone? I oh. think when you when you read when you read some of the broadcast media reports, what gets cited as a reason in Australian media for um, a low level of arts programming is that there's only 21 million people in Australia and of that how many of them are going to be consumers of arts media and can we guarantee you know blah 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 um, I think if Australian media production had the confidence to see itself as producing a product for a national audience that also has the potential to retail overseas then suddenly mm. you overcome that issue but that's a confidence issue that I think will shape most media in a context where you've got, as you say, the middle managers saying, oh, we've got to look at the bottom line of the national interest. Interesting. So um, the person who, you know, <coughs> fashion news television, um, the person who launched that, I mean, was an Australian, Elsa Clench with CNN. Um, but, I mean, you know, she did that 20 years ago. And, uh, and then she sort of, you know, CNN, I think, don't, doesn't have much fashion at all. But, um, yeah, we're always out there somewhere in the world, Australians. <laughs> and also from... Uh, from a, a sort of a business perspective, I find that like since moving here, I've never met like a bigger group of like torrenters <laughs> like uh, in in the world. It's uh, I think that like the rem like Australia's remoteness has really taught it to cope uh, in a really interesting way in the sort of in the in the sort of new digital world and like downloading a hell of a lot of shows is I think just part of of being here. Oh, you've never seen so many downloaders, did you say? Yeah. Oh, Torrances. right, right, right. Torrances, Tor yeah. Tor yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I guess that that's reflected in how broadcasters like the ABC and so on go forward, like producing, producing uh, shows that they have on their iPlayer equivalent that they confidently allow people to download and share, like they should be in that position, you know, as a public sector broadcaster. They should consider making their stuff more available rather mm -hmm. than kind of, you know, 
it gets shown once a year and then it's it's hard to find. Well, we want it when we want it. You know, we yeah. don't want to wait until we're you know gone to the international you know television selling convention. Well, I can't remember mm. is it, which was it Nipcon or whatever. Um, mm. You know, we want it. And I mean, we know we, we traditionally also are the biggest you know consumers of magazines in the world. That's mm. always um, because we are isolated. We want to see stuff. I mean, obviously it's all online now. Too, yeah. so. Um, I just had a question um, relating to, we're talking about TV and fashion getting into TV and also this new media coming in. I'm just interested in the panel whether we see that um, fashion is um, disintegrating or is moving into this new media and reforming um, in terms of, uh, I guess, celebrity um, and voice within that new media. Mm. Um. Sorry, um, can you just... Yeah, sorry, after I said that, I mean, I'm probably going on a couple of different um, journeys with that question. Um, so my question, I guess, is um, whether in this new media, whether fashion's going to reform in terms of having some sort of structure. Like, as I sort of think about the history of fashion, you have... Um, a lot of big names and it seems that now you, you know the rise and fall of particular um, designers seems you know seems a lot faster I don't know if that's just my naivety but whether in this new media whether we'll see some sort of consistency and some sort of big names or whether we'll have people like Tavi who sort of appear and then somebody else you know a year later and then you know like you don't have big characters so much anymore. I Look, I think the new media is allowing, because of the viral landscape, we're able to see heroes, you know, those kind of self-made celebrities come up a lot more. And so I think that we're, it's a lot broader. And it's a bit like, if you have a look at our social trends, that individualism, as we've talked about, it's the evolving of us, the evolving of the media, and fashion comes into that as well. So we keep evolving into this new space. And, I mean, if we term celebrity, if you'd asked 20 years ago what celebrity meant, it would be entirely different because people are making... I mean, a lot of people blog to make themselves a celebrity status. Mm. And I think that we'll find that we'll have a lot come and go like that because when the media was a lot closed, you really got those... Um, very um, high-profile people, and they, they didn't have as many different avenues. Like, it wasn't easy to put yourself up on um, the net for everyone to see. The internet has changed that to such a degree. I do think that we will start to see, because everyone's a celebrity, If we've seen the celebrity status actually almost become, with the Lindsay Lohan and... You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole cast of Britney Spears and they've kind of been degraded a little bit. It's almost a little bit uncool to be the really big celebrity and it's cooler to be the individual celebrity to come up. And I think that we'll see the individualism take, but I think after a while we'll all get bored of the next celebrity. We'll get bored of this trend that everyone's able to be on the net and I think that the real talent will start to shine through. I'm not sure how that'll work, but I do think that that seems to be a natural evolution that does seem to happen in each trend. Yeah, because it's sort of a, it comes down to accessibility. So everyone now can yeah. get a digital SLR and start experimenting with photography. You can get a sewing machine a lot probably more accessible than 20, 30 years ago. So it's interesting to see where that will go and what will rise up. Mm. 
I've just got a bit of a gossipy question about the production on the show for Anthony. One of the, the things I loved about the show was um, just the, the detail on the challenges. I loved seeing just the process that the designers took and conceptualising their ideas and the focus on uh, just some of the, the clever ideas. When I watch shows like you know, MasterChef, sometimes it seems like there's so much drama in the house and between the contestants. And sometimes I'm sort of like, can I just see what the recipe was? Can I see what they're actually cooking? Like, you don't even see the dish. And when I watch Project Runway, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I get to see the outfit. I get to see the camera go around, you know, the frock. Um, you know, when the, the, she took the, the, the jacket off, you get to see the fabric. And um, that's one of the, the things I loved about the show. But I'm wondering when you're on it, those challenges... Do you, do you feel that you have the time or do you sometimes feel like, are they realistic challenges? Are they achievable? Do you feel like sometimes the challenges, you're, you're thrown in to a situation where there is drama created for the camera, where there's going to be conflict between you and the other contestants just for, you know, to create a show or, or is it about, you know, creating the outfits? Um, I guess for me, when I was given a challenge, like, it's meant to be a challenge, so you're gonna scream and go, oh my God, like, I'm gonna do it. But at the end of the day, you wanna win. So, um, I don't know, I just, for me, I stayed focused, and there were people which I didn't like, obviously. Um, <laughs> guess. Anyone wanna guess? Come on, guess. No, I mean, there was people I liked more, and I People you liked less. Yeah, um, but I mean, there was lots of, things going on, like, you see, I don't know how long an episode goes for, an hour, an hour, you are filmed for like, six, I don't know, how many, how many hours in there, I don't know, <laughs> like, you get filmed from like, four o'clock in the morning to, say, ten o'clock at night, so, yeah, there's lots of drama, and I, I thought it was really funny, and they didn't show any of the funny things, I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> they showed me, anyway. But they, I don't know, it's weird watching it for me personally because of what they choose to show. Like, obviously they're going to show Michael flicking his hair and being a bitch because that's funny. I personally would like to see more of, more of the detail and more of how fashion is created because as much as I think it's a fun show, I think it's something which there are young designers who watch it and go, I would like to understand how they did that. And, mm. you know, I think everyone has such different levels of skill on it and that's what I liked seeing everyone else do their thing I wasn't the fastest sewer I wasn't the best pattern maker but I had a creativity which no one else had whereas I would love to have watched William on TV do his pattern making because that is such a high skill level that I didn't have that answered your question Unfortunately, out of time. I am. Um, I, I might dub these guys in to stay at their little seat for two more minutes if you want to high five them on the way out. And um, so, I'd just like to thank you, the audience, for coming this evening, and thank you to Jay up in the bio box, and to Paddy Huntington, Sarah Gale, Anthony Capon, Ian Goldstone, and David Sermon for chairing this evening. Thank you so much.